Guys, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I mean years. I've spent years looking up to this combat leader that we're going to talk about today, a guy who has inspired me throughout my entire career in the Army. And then after I left the Army, I continued to remain inspired by him and what he's doing for our country today. On this episode of Unbeatable, I get a chance to sit down and talk with one of my great inspirations, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who eventually not only ended up in the United States Army as a three-star general, but he ended up as number one on a list that no one on the planet wants to be on. You got to check this episode out to figure out what list that would be this week. My guest on Unbeatable is Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. Hey, before we get into the conversation with General Boykin, I want to thank the Solomon Foundation once again. Thank you guys and gals at the Solomon Foundation. What you're doing, not just for my podcast, but what you're doing is helping the local church grow. And I want to thank you for creating a way for people to get an excellent return while they're also making an eternal impact with their income. If you're listening to this and you want to know more about these folks, go check them out at thesolomonfoundation.org. Now here's my conversation with a guy that I've looked up to for a long time, Jerry Boykin. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, sir, it is great to see your face and to be able to connect again. Thanks for being with me in this interview. It's a real privilege to be with you. You are uh, you're a guy that I have a great regard for, and, uh, and I, I appreciate being on your program. Well, I'll tell you, the feeling is mutual. Uh, of the combat leaders that I know, there is not three other people that have more experience, have done uh, what you have done in more difficult and dangerous circumstances, and not only your your uh, ability to lead warriors in combat, but also your incredible faith. Um, there's a story that I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes that um, I'll remember for a long, long time um, with me and you and just one or two other people in a little makeshift chapel in uh, Mogadishu, Somalia, you know, just trying to uh, do a little Bible studies before we roll out on a mission. But yeah, this, uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. So thanks again for connecting with me. Well, thank you. And for the listener, let me just give them a little bit about your background. You spent 36 years in the United States Army. Is that accurate? That is correct. And retired with the rank of Lieutenant General. For those people that are listening around the world, that means he retired with three stars and was involved in pretty much everything that America did at the pointy end of the spear for most of your entire career, uh, if I can just put things in those terms. I was very blessed, you know, to be uh, not only with just great soldiers, but the Rangers and the Special Forces and, of course, the Delta Force, 
uh, I was just blessed to be with them and to be with them as long as I was, because I was, I stayed really uh, at the tactical level for a long time. And, and uh, so that was a real blessing for me. And, and I, and I will tell you that as you well know, there is nothing, uh, and I hate to say enjoyable uh, because it's probably not a, the right term, but it is certainly an honor and, and you, you feel privileged to be able to be with the kind of soldiers and sailors and airmen, frankly, yeah, that, right. that we were with. It, we were privileged uh, to be with them and to uh, to be able to lead them. So uh, that's the way I feel about it. And, and I think a lot of others do too. I echo your sentiments. I've said to people, uh, some of the firefights that you and I have been in, I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy, but uh, one of my greatest honors in the world are the guys the warriors that I had a chance to serve with on my left and on my right. There's nobody else I would rather be with. If you have to be in those circumstances, than those amazing warriors from all branches of the military that were around us during that fight. Absolutely. And you know, when, when the anniversary rolled around the other day, that was really probably the main thing that I was thinking about was, was, uh, how, how could I be so blessed? And, uh, to be able to be out there and to be the commander of these people. And, and then, uh, you know, the, it came to my mind, some of them didn't come home. And then you wonder, well, should I feel privileged to have been with them? And I will tell you how I've finally come to resolve this. I am glad that I was with them. I'm glad that I was with them. And I'm glad yeah. that people like you were with them because they needed to hear the word. And, uh, and, and I know people will find it difficult, but we had a pastor there and, uh, that pastor, uh, was preaching the word every day. So everybody had an opportunity to hear the word and, you know, uh, the Bible tells us how important that is to, That's absolutely to right. hear the word. Yeah. And what I'm going to do in a few minutes is get deep into our faith because um, I've heard your story. I haven't been in the audience, but I have heard your uh, the recording of your story. And it fires me up, frankly, every time that I've heard it, sir. And you have no many. Uh, you, I haven't had a chance to tell you how many times I've been to uh, speak somewhere and they're saying, hey, a couple of years ago, we had a commander from Somalia that was here. And I was like, please tell me that it wasn't Jerry Boykin. Because the last thing I want to do is be the guy who had to who follows him, uh, you know, a year or two later. So, well, how do you years after you? Well, even years after you speak, they're still talking about you. Is what I want you to hear. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. Thanks. Uh, let's just get into your career real quickly. There is, I could go for four days on what you've accomplished in the army. We're not going to do that because the audience doesn't have that kind of time. But I do want to point out a few highlights of your career. Maybe we would call them lowlights. Maybe we would call them highlights. But just some of the places that you were at the time that you were there forged you into an incredible leader, like joining the United States Army, really, um, while we're still 
well in the swing of Vietnam and joining as a, uh, you know, a combat leader. So would you talk about what it was like to join the army in 1971? Yeah, in January of 1971 uh, was when I actually came on active duty. And uh, that was that was not a good period. It, it was a period where there was an awful lot of turmoil and and a lot of people, the there were otherwise good Americans, uh, had reached a point where they no longer supported the war. So for me, I was conflicted because I could not understand after having a dad that had served in World War II in the Navy and then in World War I, I mean, World War Wow, the Korean War. Yeah, wow. And, uh, and he, he was a real patriot. And I could not understand. So it really uh, threw me into a bit of turmoil where I I was really at the point where I was saying, I'm not sure that I even want to stay in the military now. If yeah. People hate the military this much. But as I, as I prayed, uh, I think the Lord gave me peace about it. And, and then as, as I stayed in the military, the Lord, began to bless me in ways that I had not expected. And I was, uh, I was delighted to be able to stay and serve as long as I did. And, uh, and then I realized that, uh, no, there were an awful lot of people in our military that believed the same things I believed and were just as happy to serve as I was. And, uh, that, that really made it a, a different situation for me. Uh, thank you, by the way, for saying that, because I wanted the listeners to hear there's very few people in America left that remember just how chaotic and just how I'm going to use this phrase unpatriotic much of our country was at the time that you were putting the uniform on for the first time. When I showed up to the Ranger Regiment, it was in the 80s, and most of the senior NCOs had come in the army at the end of Vietnam and had basically risen through the ranks during the late seventies. And every one of them to a man said, Jeff, you have no idea what this army was like in 1977, 78, 79, and just how difficult it was. And I was thinking you were moving through the ranks and you were leading at a time that may have been one of the most challenging that, you know, the U.S. Army after Vietnam may have been one of the most challenging periods of the U.S. Army. And then we get to this real low point in America and in military morale when the U.S. hostage, when the U.S. Embassy is stormed in Tehran, Iran, and hostages are taken for 444 days and the United States military is really struggling. Well, the U.S. government is really struggling to respond. So I have read the books and I have the greatest respect for the very small handful of guys. And I'm going to use the title of a book here who had the guts to try to get our hostages back. Can you tell the audience a little bit about Operation Eagle Claw? Yes, Eagle Claw. Um was the uh, the code name for the operation that you just described, where we, on the night of the, uh, I think it was the 20th of April, 
we went into Iran, landed in the desert about 100 miles from the U.S. Embassy, which was in Tehran. And uh, there, from there, we were going to make the next leg into the embassy and rescue 52 Americans uh, that had, were still being held there uh, by followers of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And I, uh, I remember thinking, this is going to be a high-risk operation. Yeah. And uh, so I really... I really set my mind on on uh, calling upon the name of Christ to protect us and to give us victory and to, to bring us home to our, our loved ones. So we launched that. And this is an important for people to understand because we're coming to the same point right now. Yeah, I agree. We Nobody would let us use their territory for staging bases because our president at that time, Jimmy Carter, had lost all credibility as a leader, yeah. as a world yeah. leader, mm-hmm. theoretically the most powerful man in the world. And he had lost any notion of being a strong leader and people no longer trusted him. So they were not going to set themselves up to now be the enemy of, you know, the nation that wanted to destroy America. Um, but, Anwar Sadat, of all people, Anwar Sadat said, you can use uh, one of my air bases mm-hmm. called Wadi Kenya. You can use one of my air bases to stage this from. And then the Turks, ultimately, after a lot of negotiation with the Turks, they said, if you come back into Turkey on the way out, once you got your hostages, we won't shoot you down. But we are not going to give you any, yeah. any kind of support or anything like that. We're not going to help you. We just won't shoot you down if you cross over our airspace. Exactly right. So we landed there in, uh, late at night, about 100 miles from Tehran. We landed at C-130s, and then we brought RH-53s off the uh, USS Nimitz. And they linked up with the C-130s there at what we called Desert One. Desert One, yeah. And uh, we pulled the hoses out the back and started refueling the uh, the RH-53 helicopters. And I say RH because they were Navy models of the of the 53. And uh, as we were uh, refueling, all of a sudden one of the Planes decided he was going to lift off and reposition so another helicopter could come in and take his place and get refueled. And when he lifted off, uh, he went vertigo. That simply means that he he lost his equilibrium and he couldn't tell which way was up. And that that's not euphemistic in any way. Yeah, it's true. Right. He he lost his equilibrium. And when he did, he could not hold it. He didn't know what which way was up, which way was down. He couldn't hold it, and he landed. After he had lifted up, he crashed right on top of uh, one of those C-130s. And when he did, the whole thing blew up. The whole thing. I'm, I'm telling you, it was in it was in a it was a ball a ball of fire. Just a ball of fire, and uh, and this is where I. Uh, 
I wrote a book with with uh, Stu Weber called uh, Warrior Soul. Yeah. Stu's my best best friend, and uh, and in that book, Stu said, "Why don't you write a story about the power of a ten second prayer?" So I said, "Okay." I thought about it and I said, "I'll do that." And so I wrote one of the chapters that's called "The Power of a Ten Second Prayer," and what it what it's talking about is when that thing went off and exploded, I could not do anything. I couldn't get in that fire and get them out, but I could pray. I could go back to my source. And I began to pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to spare these men's life. They trusted you in Jesus' name. 10 second prayer. And all of a sudden the right troop door came open and 45 Delta Force guys came jumping out. Wow. Out onto the desert floor and running across the desert floor. And with the exception of a couple of minor burns, and I emphasize minor, every one of those men came out of there alive. The Delta Force guys that had stood in the hangar in Wadi Kenya, Egypt, and prayed that God would be with us and would bring us home alive. And let me tell you, that was one of those situations where I saw a miracle. There was no denying that miracle Absolutely. because everybody else saw that miracle. Yeah. And, and it was just, uh, it was a real blessing that we all, we got out. Yeah. And I want to tell everybody when you use the word miracle, you're not exaggerating because you're talking a transport full of jet fuel that's supposed to refuel helicopters and a helicopter literally lands on top of it. And this is going to create a fireball that you can see from a hundred miles away. That's how much fuel goes up and 45 guys escape out of that. Not one of them should have made it out of there alive with 45 of them coming out of there alive. There's no way to explain that other than a supernatural hand of God uh, protecting them. I would also say that your Rangers also set a big fire out there. That yeah, night. when they shot up that bus. They shot up, well, it was the bus, but they shot up a fuel tanker. Yeah, the fuel tanker. Yeah, the fuel tanker was coming out of uh, Pakistan, I think. And, uh -huh. and those Rangers were anxious to shoot something. I talked to, yeah, I talked to one of those guys from 1st Ranger Battalion who was on that big 90 millimeter recoilless rifle who wanted yeah. to get out there and get some, and they sure got some. Um, he did. While we're talking, it's since you mentioned him, I owe the greatest, um, you know, admiration and respect for our mutual buddy, Stu Weber. He's more like a mentor in the ministry and kind of like a hero to me. And you both are basically two of the special forces leaders that I've looked up to for most of my career. Well, thank you. Um, so Stu, is your, if you're listening, I just want you to know we're thinking about you and we're praying for Linda. Um, right now, because you mean a lot to me too, buddy. Yeah. Um, obviously, with this big fireball, now the mission is off. There's no way we can get in to get to those hostages, and they don't get out for 444 days until they're released. But this is a moment in special operations history where the the entire U.S. military apparatus realizes we got to learn some things. We got to fix some things and we need to create some pilots that can fly anywhere on the globe, you know, and be able to do anything we need them to do. 
And the good that came out of this nightmare was the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, the Night Stalkers, um, that come directly out of this this attempt to rescue those hostages in Iran. Yeah, I tell people uh, I've been involved in bringing down governments, one of which was my own. Yeah, Jimmy yeah, Carter's course. administration. Yeah. It was the Carter administration that right. uh, ultimately paid the price for that. Yeah. And, uh, we all came home, and I think it's important to make sure that your audience understands. We came home probably at the lowest point in our lives, then and now. Probably the lowest point we, we'd ever had because we had failed. We had failed to bring our fellow Americans home. And it took about 20 years before we were able to see literally what God had done through this whole thing, because what did it do? It brought Ronald Reagan into the presidency and he did so much for our military. It also set us up to be a unified command. We, we were running with the big dogs then, and we had authorities that other commands didn't have. So there were so many things that came out of that that were important to the future of America and of the special operations that it was, uh, it, it was just a, once we took an objective look at it, we realized what we had gone through and the price that we had all paid emotionally was well worth all of the benefits, all the good things that happen. And, and that's the way it is in our lives too. You know, I mean, we've got to look at, at, at situations and, and understand that, you know, I think Romans eight is pretty clear, right. you know, that all things, that's right. All things work together for the good. Right? And, yeah. uh, and I think we were all, ultimately we reached a point where we were proud of having been part of that because of what it did bring about, but it was hard getting there. Yeah. Some of those great sergeants and officers that I looked up to early on in my career, they were involved in desert one and e operation Eagle claw. And they said the same thing that you're saying right now, like personally, it was a low point in the military is a low point for morale for the country, but it created the the results of it the ripples effect of it created something that would never be uh you know something powerful something amazing that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that you know that force that was thrown together and gave it everything that they could but um you know ended up with a big fireball in the middle of the desert yeah absolutely sir you so you go on and you do basically everything that America's military does. You're involved in Operation Urgent Fury in 83. You're in Just Cause in 89. And you're leading and you're leading special operators in both of those wars. So by the time that we all come together in your compound and we get ready to leave for Somalia, you're now the commander of the unit and you're now, you, you've got combat experience that frankly, in American history, most combat leaders don't have. Um, 
Can you describe our audience has heard more than a few interviews of guys that were in Task Force Ranger, but can you describe it from your level leading that unit? Um, you know, kind of the spin up and the preparation for Somalia, because it's it's complex. It's challenging. It's not necessarily more dangerous or less dangerous than any of the other missions that you've been on, but it's certainly challenging. Yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. Uh because I never had any uh, fear that we were not going to be successful. I mean, I, I went in confident, and that is confident that we would win whatever fights we got into. I wasn't confident uh, that we were going to be able to capture the warlord that we were after, which was Manuel Noriega, because it was his territory. And, 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 you know, you, you look for somebody in their own territory. That's a whole lot different than just going out yeah. and, and reacting to the intelligence that you have or whatever. But, uh, but I was never in doubt about the outcome. We would win the fights and, and we even won the last fight. Uh, it's just that, uh, the media told us that it was an abysmal failure. And that was another one of those where. You know, I think we all had to put on our big boy britches and say, you know, you don't really, you're not even entitled to an opinion on this. Right. Because you weren't there and you don't know what happened. Yeah. And, uh, so, but it was, it was, it was tough. And I'll tell you, Jeff, and you know, you've, you've heard me talk about it, but when we got into the fight there in uh, Mogadishu, it went on for 18 hours. And when that 18 hours was over, 16 of the men that I was responsible for were dead. 15, actually, because another one died the next day. But I had been serving the Lord for about 23 years, and I had seen miracles while we were there in Mogadishu. I'd seen miracles. And then as I walked up to a tailgate of a five-ton truck to help unload the wounded and dead, and the wounded were laying on top of the dead, and I helped drop the tailgate and the blood just poured out the back yeah. of that. You you remember, you saw it, you were there. And there's nothing, there's nothing in my life that has gripped me harder than walking up to that truck and seeing the mangled bodies. And that night I sat down on my bunk. I was so angry with God. I was so angry with God. I just said, how could you let this happen? Do you even care? And uh, then the answer came to me. And there is no God. That's the answer that came to me. There's no God. At the moment I said that, and I, I, I debated, by the way, as to whether to even put this in the book, but I thought, yeah, people need to know. Yeah, because I'm not the only one that's ever right, ever doubted God. But the moment I said that, the, the voice of the Lord spoke in what for me was a totally audible voice, and it said, "If there's no God, there's no hope." And at that point, I began to uh, weep in such a way that my chest was heaving. You know, it was. But the Lord, you know, He, I got hit the next day. And they said, said, 
well, we're going to send you home. I said, no, you're not. There are men out there that are in worse shape than I am. Mm -hmm. There are Rangers out there that have taken a greater beating than I did with this mortar that hit me and I'm not leaving. And, and to his credit, the commanding general there was willing to accommodate me and let me stay. But I needed to be there for other reasons too, because I knew that these men were carrying a heavy burden because I was too. And I wanted to be there with them to be able to witness to them about God's mercy and the fact that, again, uh, God will use all of these things in our lives personally. We just have to trust that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. And if we can get to that point where we really do trust that, uh, we can turn those things to good. Yeah, I there are about 45 reasons why I consider you to be unbeatable um, not just your military career, but what you're saying is absolutely one of those reasons. There's a moment that I have seared in my memory. It's just before the big firefight in Somalia. And as you know, Chaplain Michelki does regular church or chapel services for us over there. We're eating or, you know, we do the chapel services in the dining facility, which is just a tent and some, you know, plywood uh, tables. But I still remember you watching you and you and I've never had this conversation. I've never had a chance to say this to you before, but I still remember watching you seeing Captain Mike Steele, seeing Major General Bill Garrison and one or two other leaders in that tent. And it gave me something to look up to, something to aspire to, to see great leaders that have been through incredible hardships in the past that have held on to their faith in the middle of it. Um, and as you, you and I both know, I have a, I had a rock solid faith while I was over there. And it was my faith that sent me out into the city streets and kept me out in their uh, city streets all night long without any concern for my safety, because I knew where I was going to spend eternity. If it wasn't for one or two of those chapel services in that little dining facility tent and just watching you and some of those other leaders and having something to look up to, I don't know that my faith would have been that strong in the fight. So one of the things that I wanted to do in this interview is to tell you thank you for not just being a great combat leader, but thank you for being a godly leader that a guy like I could, like me could look up to um, throughout my career. Well, thank you, Jeff. And I've never asked you this question, but... Um, you know, a lot of these guys really want um, to know that they have been redeemed by the blood of yeah. Jesus Christ, yeah. but they're not willing to. They're not willing to ask that question, right? Unless they know that you are truly a Christian that has been redeemed by the blood. And that you are one that they can trust not to compromise what they are thinking. And, and, and how many guys would you say fell into that category and, and came to you as in one way or another, really wanting you to pray for them, yeah. really wanting, wanting you to counsel them? 
Yeah, it's fascinating that you're describing how you reacted to the fight because my reaction was almost exactly the same. And I had this moment, I will never forget. I cherish it for the rest of my life where I had this, where I felt the Lord speaking to me in a way that I've never experienced it before or since immediately after the fight in Somalia. And this moment was because 20, I'm going to be conservative here. 20 guys from the task force, Rangers and special operators, you know, the STS came up to me and said, Jeff, I watched you last night and I'm telling you, there is something different about you. I don't even know what it is, but I want to know what do you have that I don't have? So I had guys in the air, airplane hangar that were just waking me up saying, I need to talk to you right now, Jeff, because I'm struggling and I saw something in you last night. And there's a very definite moment. I still remember exactly where I was standing on that airfield where I felt the Lord overwhelmingly say to me, I want you to change your career path. Instead of kicking in doors and killing bad guys, I want you to serve the soul of America's special operators. That set me on the path to become an army chaplain. I had never considered it for one second of my life until the day after the fight was over with. And it was so obvious to me, I've never been able to dismiss it, never been able to do anything different. That's why I'm still in Columbus, Georgia, trying to reach America's special operators and minister to their souls. Well, your, your faith was so strong though, that what, what you just said, what you just told us, the story you just told us was a confirmation that even in the worst of situations, God was using you to bring people into a knowledge of his saving grace. And, and, and one of the things that I find human and interesting is the fact that there are people that have grown up in the church but somewhere along the line, they have turned in the wrong direction. And now they don't think that they can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what our mission is. People like you were passing that word along there in Mogadishu in a, in a time when people were going to die. And everybody knew that people were going to die. They knew that everybody wasn't coming home. But your faith drew people to you. They don't come to me. I mean, some of the officers would, but but they would come to you because they needed the assurance that they could still be saved, be redeemed. And that's so powerful. Yeah. As we both have said at the beginning of this interview, I wouldn't wish that moment on my worst enemy, but I would go back and do it tomorrow in a second just because of how powerful it was in other people's lives. And more than a few of them have stopped and talked to me about it. Um, and, and that's something that I will absolutely not take credit for. I didn't do that. God used that moment to grab somebody's heart that really wasn't listening until that moment. And now they're ready to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the mortar attack? As you and I both know, mortar attacks were a nightly occurrence. You could almost set your watch to them. Oh, yeah. But yeah. the mortar attack 
the mortar attack that unfortunately claimed Matt Ryerson's life and cost a lot of people, you, Doc Marsh and others, uh, you know, uh, to took a, a toll on a lot of our leaders. Would you tell everybody what happens immediately the night after the big fight is over with? Yeah, we had a, uh, a memorial service there that day and, and, uh, honored our dead and our wounded. And, uh, that night as the sun had just gone down, a mortar was fired. Four mortars were fired. Three of them went over us and went out in the ocean and one landed, uh, literally six, eight feet from, from me and a couple of guys, but it, there were actually 16 people that got hit. Yeah. Yeah. Literally landed in a crowd of leaders coming out of the operations center. I mean, you couldn't pick a more, a better spot to drop a mortar on the face of the earth than where they put that one that night. Yeah. Well, uh, so they, they came over and picked us up. Those of us who were wounded and I had been hitting the uh, legs and, uh, I looked down when I got up, somebody told me it, it, it knocked me out. I don't know if that's true or not, but I went down, I got knocked down and then I I had been hitting the legs. So, um, they came over with a stretcher for me and then I started yelling, find a doctor, find a doctor. And I didn't realize it, but he was laying right next to me and, uh, he had been hit in the, in the, uh, growing and, uh, I think he got hit in the femoral artery and uh, he was in bad shape. He was dying. And I laid next to him in a little tent they had set up there for a medical facility. And I just laid there next to him and held on to him, held his hands, squeezed his hand, prayed for him, kept saying, Lord, don't let him die. Lord, don't let him die. And all of a sudden, the, the medical team got a little frantic and, and they said, uh, they said, he's going, he's going, he's going. And I assumed they meant he was, he was dying. Yeah. So I just, just kept praying for him. And, uh, the nurse there, an air force nurse reached down, put her hand on my shoulder and patted it. And she said, let him go, sir. He's gone. And she told me that about three times he's gone. Well, I just kept praying and I just. It ain't over till it's over, as Yogi That's says. Right. Yeah. So I just kept praying, and uh, all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden, he came back to life. Yeah. Now I'm going to tell you all. I, I looked at the heart and lung, not lung machine, the blood pressure and the heart machine that were up against the wall and he had zeroed out. But he came back to life. And, uh, and people say, well, you know, I think that's, he made that one up. No, I didn't ask him because I did ask him. I asked about I see him periodically, the, the Rob Marsh, Dr. Rob Marsh, yeah, Doc Marsh. And I said to him one time, I said, Rob, you know, you were dead, don't you? 
because his wife, his uh, his sister had walked up to me at a thing up in the mountains of North Carolina, a Baptist retreat center up there. And I was telling this story and she came in, she was just weeping. And, uh, and she said, you don't know, but he is on fire for the Lord. Yeah. She said, awesome. he, he's a, he's a deacon in the church. He does Sunday school. He takes kids to a summer camp, a Christian summer camp. He is on fire because he knows the Lord spared him for a reason. So, um, I said to him, I said, Rob, you know, you were dead, don't you? And he just stopped and paused. And I said, I was there. And he, uh, he teared up and he nodded, nodded his head. And, uh, that's all I wanted to see from him. I wanted him to fully appreciate that he'd been spared for a reason, and he did. He clearly did. So, so that was uh, that was an experience that uh, I wouldn't wouldn't want to go through again. But uh, but if I was called to, I, I you know I'd be honored to. Yeah. I've met more than one or two people that Doc Marsh is their family doc and is a prince of a man and has taken care of them and their family. And they all talk about his skill as a doctor, but his also his quiet, but very strong faith. Yeah. Um, and I have the greatest respect for him. Um, like I do for you. Uh, there's many more things about your career. We could talk about you as the commander of U.S. Special Forces Command or the Special Warfare uh, Center. Um, but there's a point of your career that I really want to focus in on for a few minutes. And again, you, I've never had this the opportunity to say this to you personally, but I watched you from a distance handle, I think, one of the most challenging moments a career leader like you will ever have to fa face. And it's when your career came to an end and I watched how you faced that. And it is still today leaving an impact on me. So without getting into all of the ugly details, will you just talk about kind of why your career came to an end at, a, at the three-star level and the conditions around that? Yeah, I, uh, had been when I got out of the military, I, I, I was ordained and I was uh, speaking uh, quite a bit around in different places. And uh, I was trying to get people to understand what Islam was primarily. And, and I, I wanted them to understand the brutality of it. And, and that just uh, drew uh, terrorist groups uh, like they had uh, had finally found somebody that they could identify they, and they could point out and they can get everybody else because I was getting a lot of attention on TV. I, I want to uh, say this. I want to break in and say this to the audience. They basically, you became the poster boy, the number one, uh, you know, the number I, one hunted man for most of the uh, radical Islamic terrorist groups around the world. Um, Sorry to interrupt, but that's what's going that's on at this right. point. And, and uh, 
they they really were after me and there was really a, a no kidding serious threat yeah and it, to be honest i uh I, I called the guys, they, they found some guys, some terrorists down in Eastern North Carolina that had me on their computer and they were going to capture mm-hmm. me and torture me. And, uh, so I, I got some intercessors praying for me and, uh, I didn't tell my wife, uh, but the guy that ordained me called me up and said, you got to tell her, you got to go home and tell her. So I, I said, Oh boy. So I went home. I said, "Look, yeah, I can imagine how this conversation is going to go." Yeah. I said, "Hun, I'm, I got people after me," and uh, I said, "I'm ready to stop talking about anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ." And uh, and and she bowed her head for a second, looked around, and she looked up and she looked in my eyes. She said, "I want to tell you something." She said. Uh, she said, you're doing what God's called you to do. Now you keep doing it. And if they come after you, make sure they get me and we'll go together. <laughs> That's, That's what I'm then, talking about. And then she looked at me and she said, she stood there for a minute. And she said, now go over to your brother's gun store, gun store say, and get me another pistol. I was going to say, go get me a 45. If they, We're going out together, but we're going to go out pulling the trigger. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, I just want the audience to hear, um, if you would have toned your faith down, if you would have just been a lot more quiet about what you believe, frankly, many people at your level would have done that, but you didn't. And as a result, because we're in the, the thick of the global war on terrorism, you really do become like the number one most wanted man for many Islamic terrorist groups. And that's not a list that anybody wants to make number one on the list. And you've become number one on that list. And I watched you, sir, from a distance, how you handled that pressure. And I also watched that it didn't cause you to back down or to change your message. And that's one of the things that I wanted to say to you today. I want to say thank you for not backing down, not giving in to the danger, the death threats, the pressure, staying consistent with, uh, you know, what you believe and not allowing anyone, even the very violent terrorists out there to change your message. Well, thank you for that, Jeff. And, and uh, that's one of those situations where you know that your adversary is is capable of doing all kinds of bad things to you. Yeah, yeah. But you also know that God has given you the pledge that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And if you go, and I, I had to, this is where for the first time I talked about it, but I never really lived it. I knew that if I went, if, if, if the Lord let me go and be with him, that it was my time. See, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that not, nobody's going to go before their time. Yeah. But when it is your time, you're, you're going that, to be with the Lord. And there's nothing now, anybody can do to stop it. That's yep. right. And there he has extended at least one person's life in the, in the scriptures, but right. But that said, and, and I, I, 
once I finally got to the point where I could internalize that and say, no, this, this is serious. This is the truth. He's not going to leave me nor forsake me. No, I've been, I've been shot twice. I mean, I've been hit with a mortar and, and, uh, and then, but the first time was in Grenada and I got hit with a 50 caliber, uh, that came, it came through my radio, which is really kind of what saved me. But I was, they were, they were talking about taking my arm off. Yeah. I was going to say a 50 caliber usually means they pick up your body pieces. They don't pick up a whole body. They pick up the pieces after, after a 50 caliber. But that was the first time that I, I think I really settled my mind Mm -hmm. that what is happening to me is God's will because I have not done anything wrong. I've sinned and that's wrong, but what I'm saying is this is not a result of my sins. Right. And, uh, And I was told, we need to take your arm off. And I said, no. They said, you don't understand. Your arm, you got so much shrapnel and so many body, I mean, so many radio fragments all in your body. It's going to get infected and it may cost you your life. And I said, no, I've been talking to the Lord. And he, uh, he has assured me that if I will trust him, he will heal me. And he did. And they couldn't believe it. You know, six months later, I made a parachute jump. And and anybody who's watching this video on YouTube can see that you're strong. You've got both arms. They're both perfectly healthy. So you really did trust him with this in spite of all of the medical advice. Right. Yes. With just a few minutes left, um, can we talk about how you're leading the country now? You have led warriors at all levels in the U.S. military through some of the most dangerous and the most complex missions in 30 years. And now you help lead our country spiritually as a vice president at Family Research Council. Can you explain to everybody a little bit about what Family Research Council is and what you're doing, the work that you're doing with them now? Yeah, we just had our 40th anniversary. And I've been there, I think, uh, 12 or 13 years. Jim Dobson, a great man, just an incredible man. And and he has been really good to me. Uh, He wanted a uh, organization in Washington that he could use to lobby Congress for public policy that supported faith, family, and freedoms. Mm-hmm. So he set up the Family Research Council in Washington. And uh, that's exactly what it does now. Today, 40 years later, it is still helping members of Congress develop uh, public policies that support faith, family, and freedom. And, uh, and in doing so, we have a pastors network that these, these pastors from mm-hmm. really from all over the country. Uh, we have these pastors that are, that agree to join us and, and to be part of our network of pastors. And when things are going on that we need the pastors to rally, we have pastors in this state and that state and this area and that area. 
and, uh, and, and we give them all the information and, and they kind of take it from there unless they want our help in some way. And we do that. But we, uh, one of the things that is for me personally is most rewarding is our men's conferences where we, we really go all out to tell the men in our audiences today, the truth about so many things that they're conflicted over. Yeah. There are only two genders, but it's surprising how many pastors won't, won't say that they won't talk about it. Well, if you won't talk about it, don't turn around and say, but I love the, I love, no, you don't, you don't love them enough to tell them the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Which will save them from eternal de- damnation. Right. Yeah. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just, I'm just talking about what, what the word says. You either believe it or you don't. And uh, so I just think that it's, uh, it's really important that we have a settled mind in terms of what we believe. And then if, if we believe it, we've got to stand up for it. I agree. Yeah. And that's what we try in Family Research Council to do is to, with the men, is to get them to understand what the word says about these perplexing things and what God's standard for them is, and then how they apply that with the people that they impact. And we can all be part of that. I agree. Yeah, nothing is more awe-inspiring than to see a strong man or a good woman standing up for what they believe in. Uh, Sir, your career in the military has left an impact on me. Your books, um, Never Surrender, Man to Man, Strength and Courage, they've left an impact on me. But maybe the greatest impact is what you're currently doing, helping to shape the soul of our country, which is currently being torn apart at the seams. So thank you for staying in the fight, just staying in the spiritual fight right now um, and being at the forefront and leading in leading the way in the spiritual fight. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. And you've been, you know, you've said some very nice things today and I appreciate that. The reality is though, that uh, you don't have to be a ranger. You don't have to be a, a three-star general to be able to let your faith be a beacon. That's right. To let to your show others shine. the way. Yeah. Cause that's what we're supposed to do. That's exactly right. Every one of us are supposed to be a light on a lamp or on a stand, a, a city on a hill, just shining the way for everybody else to see. Exactly. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to do this interview with me. It's been great catching up with an old uh, warrior and a leader that I've looked up to for a long time. I cannot tell you, uh, in, in all seriousness, the feedback that I get as well from your, from from the places where you go and speak. Uh, and I would also tell you that if, if you ever wanted a job, my best friend, Stu Weber, I think would probably give you the whole church. He wanted you bad. Well, I my love that. He, he knows your heart. 
Yeah. And he knows how important it is to have warriors in the pulpit today. I love that man to death. And he has left a really, really big impact on me. And he talks about you a lot. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you once again for this interview today. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. And, and uh, I'd like to get you on my program. Uh, once a month, we have a, a program. I mean, a 45 minute long program for men. Yeah. So I'd like to get you on there. Sounds great. Let's uh, like find it. a time to do it. Yeah. Okay, bud. God bless you. Thank you. And God bless yeah. you too. I love the way Jerry Boykin put it. You don't have to be a ranger. You don't have to be a three-star general. All you have to do is go out tomorrow and live in such a way that people notice there's something about you. All you have to do is really go out and let your light shine. And the darker the environment, the more eyes are attracted to that candle, the more eyes are attracted to that light when they're in a very dark situation. Thank you, Jerry Boykin, once again, for being a great combat leader for me to look up to, but also a great man of faith for me to continue to look up to as you continue to shape the soul of the United States of America. I also want to thank those of you who tuned in for this episode. Man, we've got some amazing guests on this episode and on this podcast. And if you haven't already done it, why don't you subscribe? You can subscribe on YouTube. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform because next week we'll bring you an even more incredible story. You won't want to miss it. But you can also stay connected with us throughout the week on social media. If you'll just search for at Unbeatable Podcast, you'll find some pretty amazing content. You'll also find some pretty amazing people like our fan of the week this week, John Sasser. John, thank you for staying so connected with us. Thank you for staying so regular and for uh, letting other people know who we are and about this unbeatable podcast. But the best way for you to get connected to us is to just simply become part of the unbeatable army. If you join up for the unbeatable army, it's totally free. It's an email list where I send you content directly to your inbox each week. You join the unbeatable army and you're going to get not just material about the podcast, but you're going to get content, videos, PDFs to just keep you motivated and help you when you're facing some really rough circumstances like Jerry Boykin went through. So if you want to become part of Unbeatable Army, just simply go over to unbeatablearmy.com and check it out. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I will not, I will say it once again, you will be amazed at the story you're going to hear next week. So you got to come back. I'll see you next week. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.